before we even pray and get in it, can you imagine a world where no one lied? Can you imagine a world where everyone put Yahweh God first? There would be no end to the joy. Right, right. You could really defund the police at that point. Because no one would cheat, no one would steal. We wouldn't need the courts. If we, if we would all do what God, God knows where blessing comes from. God knows where human flourishing comes from. And it is these ten commands that drive his people into sustaining the freedom that he has given them. It's a beautiful thing to be free, but freedom doesn't come cheap, does it? Freedom costs. What is the cost to, to know God, to honor God, to put him first and to follow his commands? That's how we keep freedom. So, if you'll bow your heads with me, let's pray and we'll get right into Exodus chapter 20. Father, you are good. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for every man, every woman in this room. Your word is power. God, help us. Help us. You are everything we need. You show us how to live. And by, by grace, we're saved. But you show your saved men and women how to live on planet Earth that we might be a light unto this world, a city on a hill. Lord, as everything around us, all over the world, burns to the ground, they're going to be left looking for answers. Father, may it be your church that represents you well in those moments. God, convict us of our sins. Lord, that, me, we, that we may be a repentant people coming to you, following your commands. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Boy, I just skipped the opening joke. Woo, went straight for it. But it has been a week of 75 hard. I know you can tell already. Come on, you're supposed to be like, yeah, you look good, Brent. Okay. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Now remember, we're not going to do a lot of recap because we've got a lot to do. But remember, God, Exodus, this is the pinnacle of the book. You think the pinnacle is the Exodus. That happens early in the book. The crescendo of Exodus is bringing us to this point where God speaks to his people. God's, God has, has been growing his people. He called Abraham, he called Isaac, he called Jacob. He brought Jacob and his 12 sons to Egypt where they grew and they multiplied and they flourished in the, one of the largest societies at the time. Till they became a couple million people strong. Then God, by his strong, righteous hand of deliverance, brings them 
out of slavery, out of Egypt, saves miraculously through the parting of the Red Sea and then brings them to this Sinai Peninsula. Something unique before we even begin the text. God, by the way, this is the first and only time in the Bible where God speaks to an entire people. Verbally, audibly speaks to an entire people. We see a lot in the Bible of God coming to Abram, of God coming to Moses, God coming to a a group of disciples or a group of people in the New Testament. But here, God, for the first time, just like in fire at the bush, he spoke to Moses from the fire of the mountain. He speaks to an entire people. And this people, even though they were all slaves in Egypt, there was still social order. Remember in Egypt, uh, Moses uh, brought the elders of the people together. They still had chiefs of their tribes. There was still social ranking even among the slave class in Egypt. God doesn't speak to just the leaders here. God doesn't say, I need all the important people in the room that are making decisions. He speaks to everyone from top to bottom of an entire people group. That's important. I mean, wow. Why is this pinnacle? God is speaking from the fire of a mountain to millions of people all at once. Something else that's unique about this, though. God doesn't wait to take his people into their inheritance, into the promised land before he speaks his word, his commands to them. No, he does it outside of Israel, the nation, the geographic boundaries that he has laid out for the nation. There's a couple reasons for this. Number one, God's not just speaking to this people that will become the nation of Israel. He's speaking to all people and all nations because it's outside. It's in no man's land where God gives. That means these commands are for all people in all geographic areas all over the world. Right? The beautiful thing that God brings through Genesis and that's through the Torah is a little word we call monotheism. Look at verse 20, uh, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke. Right? Every civilization, even the coming civilizations after Egypt has many gods. The Babylonians are going to have many gods. The Persians are going to have many gods. The, uh, the, the, the Romans, are gonna, the Greeks, they're going to have many gods. Polytheism. But God speaks to his people. One God, meaning one human race, meaning one moral, absolute system for the human race. God gives his commands outside the promised land because his commands are for all people at all times. Imagine a world in which everybody followed the Ten Commandments of God. But that's not the only reason God gave his commands outside of the promised land. He also gave them outside the promised land 
Because he wanted his people to know that there is no favoritism. Imagine if they would have come into the promised land and, and said, you know, each tribe got a territory within their inheritance. What if God gave his Ten Commandments in the, the territory of Reuben? Well, all of a sudden, Reuben sticks his chest out and all his descendants stick their chest out and our territory is the best territory because it's where God spoke. No, there's no favor. God hates favoritism, James chapter 2 tells us. Right? He's one God, one people, one moral absolute system. This is why he gives the Ten Commandments in the peninsula, in no man's land, outside of the promised land. Promised land is just right on the other side of the mountain. But God speaks to his people here. Just so you know this also, one, the first ancient treaty where we have, where it's not only about a ruler and his people, but also about the people and how they should deal with each other at the same time. All right, let's get started. And God spoke. Did Moses speak? No, look at uh, chapter 19, verse 25. Moses is down the mountain with the people. Moses is not elevated at this moment. He's not done his calisthenic routine and gone back up the mountain. Moses is not speaking. We're going to see after chapter 20, at the end, where God's people say, we don't want God to speak to us like that ever again. Moses, you, you keep doing the mediator thing. We like the mediator thing. Right? To hear the voice of God is a beautiful but terrifying experience. God spoke. Why is this important? Because if Moses is speaking... People can come back and say, ah, well, you know, he probably didn't mean it like that. And that probably meant something else in that day. And all the excuses, we love to tear down the articulations and the ideologies of men. But this is not Moses speaking. This is not his words. This is not what he thinks is best for society. This is Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, speaking to an entire people, a people that he has rescued, as we'll see, from slavery. And God spoke, and by the way, just also the Ten Commandments, one, one more really unique thing about them. There is nothing abstract. Commandment number seven is not be a good person. Because being a good person, there are people cheating on their spouses today that think they're good people. Woo, just went right forward, didn't I? We're going to have a good time this morning. It's not abstract. God is specific. Imagine a world where everybody honored their father and their mother. And God spoke all these words saying, and just so you know, we call this the Decalogue, meaning ten and uh, Deca, ten, Logos, uh, word, the ten words. That's why the Jews call it the ten statements. Christians call it the ten commandments, and all those definitions are accurate and right. God's fixing to give us the building blocks of society that honors him and brings blessing to us. Why is God doing this? 
Verse 2, I am. Remember the burning bush? Fire in the bush, God speaks to Moses. I am. Tell him I am sent you. And now a burning mountain and God speaks to an entire people. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. And you should. You've heard stories as you spent 400 years in your bondage in Egypt of me. But now he is speaking directly to them. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is the context of the Ten Commandments? You've experienced slavery. Now I want you to experience the freedom that I have brought you in. Listen to me very carefully. Let's bring that home just a bit so so you know what I'm talking about. I gave an illustration a few weeks ago. Right, you can be a Christian saved by God's grace. But when we give ourselves to things lesser than God and his word, there are curses for disobedience, even for saved people. We're going to see Israel, a saved people, be exiled in a bit for their disobedience. There are consequences to sin. Sometimes we can wreck our lives, even as Christian men and Christian women, saved by the grace of God. That's why the commandments of God, we need to be serious about it. He tells us how not to experience curses in our lives, but the blessings of being in fellowship with him and knowing him, the blessings of how to live a life that honors him and shines for him in this world. This is not works-based salvation. There's only God-based salvation. Only he can save. But man, can we walk close to him by following his commands? Can Can we feel the joy in a burning world? Holiness is not just something for some ancient tradition or some ancient Methodist church. No, holiness is for all Christians at all times, in all places. Our holiness comes from the holiness of Christ and his salvation. But we are to walk after him. Those who claim to live in me must walk as Christ walked, 1 John 2, 6. And some people think, oh, well, I'd bring, you know, I'm, I'm all about the, the salvation part, but it's the walking after him. It's just really hard. There's things I want to do. There's things I want to experience. I promise you, those things lead to emptiness. They're not near as much fun as you think you, they are. You know, I was just at that Roger Waters concert a couple weeks ago. And that decrepit old man is facing death. And he has done everything in the world, every rock star has done everything that you think is going to bring happiness and joy. But at 78 years old, he's still striving and still looking for something that lasts. Because the glory of the crowd screaming and taking pictures is fleeting and momentary. And the sad old man just sits up in his hotel room by himself. After the show, it is God's ways that bring joy. We've got to go freedom, to maintain freedom that God has given his people 
has given us. We're free from sin and death. Commandment number one, you. And notice this. The you's in the... And we're only going to go through the first four today. So if some of you are like, hurry up and get to it, Brent. We got 32 minutes, four commands. We're going to get there. These first four have to deal vertically with our relationship. The Ten Commandments begin with our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10 have to deal with our relationships with each other, beginning at the home between parents and children and then moving out into the community. Commandment number one, and the you there is singular. It's not plural. It's singular. He's talking to everybody, but he's talking specifically to each individual in that crowd. Because there's no such thing as a good society that's not made up of good individual persons. I don't see any notes being taken, but that would have been a good one. Can't have a good society. Without people following the good command. Where does goodness come from? It doesn't come from us. It does come from the commands of God. This is important as we move through this. Our ways lead to immorality and more immorality and more immorality. God is telling us what good is. And people who follow good build good societies. That honor God. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, again, we don't worship. In the ancient world, there was Melech. There was Dagon. There was Ashtoreth. There was Marduk. There was a lot of different gods in the ancient world in which you don't hear about those gods anymore because Yahweh dismantled every one of them. We've talked about that earlier. All the gods of Egypt, Ra and Osiris, God dismantled all those gods. Nobody worships those gods anymore. They've been proven defeated. So how does this apply? Have no other gods before me. Yahweh has said, I have done. I'm the God that brought you out. I'm the God that delivered. I'm the God that sent the plagues. I'm the God that dismantled their gods. I'm the God that parted the Red Sea. Put nothing before me in our hearts, in our minds. There should be nothing higher than Yahweh God and his Messiah, his Savior sent to us. The second person of our one God, Jesus Christ. God in flesh. Nothing should be higher in our minds. Nothing should be higher in our hearts. And now this is where you would expect me to begin to talk about money and power and fame and all the, the gods that we talk about so often that we put above Yahweh. We say Yahweh's first, but really our career is first. We say Yahweh's first, but really our bank accounts and our retirement accounts are first. I'm not going to talk about those things today. But there are, if we can get to all four, great. If we can't, that's okay too. But let's talk about some other gods that we have put before our God. Let's talk about some other gods 
where we have found good. I mean, God is good. What he speaks is good. He says, don't put anything ahead of me. This is what it means to be good, to be fruit. Good brings fruitfulness and multiplication. What are some things that we believe in as Americans that bring the good, a competing view of the good? But false gods, the good of false gods always leads to immorality. God number one. Education. Woo! Didn't see that coming to the... Education. Education started in our country through a, a puritanical system. The Puritans built the common schools up in New England and, and, and those northern original colonies. And it was centered around learning to read and learning to write with their little tablets, their textbook being God's holy word. And it was the first time that, that the people who really excelled at teaching God's word, the other parents were like, hey, can we bring our kids over to you? So they began to gather kids together in the community while the, the gifted teachers among all the teachers would, would teach. And then the government saw it and said, this is a great idea. And like everything the government touches, they ruin it. Why would you want government to be in charge of your health? They can't even deliver mail right. I mean, UPS and FedEx can make millions and millions of dollars every year in profit doing the same thing the government bleeds millions and millions of dollars doing. Everything they touch is ruined, including the educational system. And even guys, even people of the educationalism, like Ben Stein, he saw a decade ago, you remember that little documentary, Expelled? What is education for? To teach critical thinking. Here's a view, and here's a view, and here's a view. Which view has the most evidence that comes together, right? It's to teach critical thinking. What has education become? Even secular people have seen Education has become nothing more than an indoctrinational system to teach one version of the good. And it's not God's version. And I'm not going to belabor this point, although I could. But hear this. And again, this is less than a hundred years ago. Think about that. World War II is less than a hundred years ago. The Holocaust... Less than a hundred years ago, about a decade before World War II, a guy named Sigmund Freud, you've heard of him. Sigmund Freud made a statement, and he was an Austrian, but philosopher, psychologist. He said, we don't have to worry about removing God from our societies. Because we will always have the moral compass of the intellectual class. Did you hear that? We don't have to worry about getting rid of God and his commands. We're always going to have the morality. The intellectuals are going to know what's right. A decade later, it was. Where did Hitler get his support? From the intellectual class from the educational systems of the German people. 
And we see the moral compass of the intellectuals as 11 million people were murdered in genocide, 6 million of them being Jews in concentration camps. That's the morality you get when you put something other in front of God, including education. Where does education come from? God number two, reason. Oh, from the Greeks forward, the fathers of reason. Isn't it funny how reason can lead to immorality? Let me give you this simple illustration. You're in high school, right? Education's a god in our world, so you got to get into the right school. You got you to do the right things. It's harder and harder to get into the right schools. So reason tells us, I know cheating is wrong, but I'm going to cheat on this test because it's going to, the higher the grade, the better it helps me in the future. And by the way, everybody else is probably cheating on this test too. So it's reason that causes, that drives us into immorality, doing what is wrong. It's a God we put above God and his commands. What does it mean to put God first? Obey his commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands, Jesus says in the writings of John, the beloved apostle. But when we put reason, even the Greeks, the fathers of reason, you can see how unreasonable they are in their reason, how their reason leads to immorality. When babies are born and firm, when babies are born and they're, and they're not healthy, they're not perfect babies, they thought it reasonable to take him and throw him in the river. God says that's immoral because all life comes from the father of light and the giver of life. All creation made in his image and in his likeness. But we can reason our way out when reason is our God and Yahweh is not. This is why it's important not to have any other gods. Because anything we put before Yahweh and his commands is going to lead us out of the boundaries that God has set for us that bring blessing. Flora, you can't be a blessed and flourishing society when you kill millions of babies every year. But what's the reason? Well... I'm promiscuous and it's fun and I don't want to stop and a baby's going to bring responsibility and I don't want responsibility so we'll just kill this baby. So I get a lot of reason, a lot of logic, but when you start at the wrong place, even if you have flawless reason and logic, you still end up in the wrong place. I'm preaching this morning and God's trying to let you know by alarms going off. <laughs> what I just said, you're... The alarm should be going off. We live in a world where the educational system is leading us away from God and we trust it blindly. Where reason and logic is leading us away from God and we're trusting it blindly. God number three, love. Oh, we're going to talk about graven images in a second, but you see her icons everywhere her flags are flying we just had uh, an elder and their family go up to to new england 
And they had the same experience Sarah and I had when we were in Boston a couple, a couple years ago. You know, you go for history and all, all that happens is you get indoctrinated by a nonsense, crazy world of no common sense. The flags are fl- beautiful, beautiful churches built to the glory of God, waving the flags of another God today. The God of love. Love wins. No, the love God defined wins because God wins. But the love of this world is a false God. It's a God that says, whoever, whatever, it doesn't matter as long as there's love. But love, our version of love, what we feel in our hearts, the Bible says, look at, look at Proverbs uh, chapter 14. This is actually supposed to go with reason, but it goes with love too. There is a way that seems right to a man, but that path leads to destruction. Just love, love the one you're with. I mean, we got the songs. But love, our way, not God's way, leads to, it leads us to doing what God calls abomination. But we put love above. Have no other gods before me. Love is a God right now in our world. And it's got to be brought down. Just like the Ashtoreth poles in the old cities of Israel. It's got to be brought down. And God has got to be raised again. His truth. His love. His way. His commands. No blessing. No flourishing without it. Can't happen doing it any other way. If you, do it, if you do it the world's way, guess what happens? How many of you have pets? Some of you are scared to raise your hand. We love our pets, right? Imagine you're, we love our pets. Here's the world's version of love. You're walking your dog. Some kids come running by. One kid trips over your dog. Both the kid And the dog fall into the raging river that you're walking beside. You have a split second to decide who you're going to save. This kid's a stranger. You don't know him from Adam, but you love your dog. This is the immorality. right? If you would save a dog over a human being, it's immoral. It's abhorrent. Child. Created in the image and likeness of God, a dog. As much as we love them, they're just dogs. And I've said this before, and people hate me for it all the time, but you should not give a dime to any organization that saves animals before every human being is saved. Last one. Actually, there's one more I'd like to do, but we don't have time. What's another God? Right, ever since the Enlightenment, right, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. We are the most self-absorbed society. On pl- Have you ever seen Wally? Anybody in here ever seen Wally? I mean, give us ten years. That's where we're going to be, floating around on our little hover carts, four hundred and seventy-five pounds, slurping our slurpees. Uh, inundated by the screen that's in front of us, not even seeing or looking where we're going. I mean, it's, it's a 
sad commentary on where we're at. So what's the God that we've put above Yahweh God? Free will. Think therefore, it's about me, it's about us. Only what's in here, only what's in here matters. Everything else, it just exists for my pleasure to serve me. It's why social media took off so quick. Because who doesn't deserve to be a rock star? Why wouldn't the world want to know what you had for breakfast? Free will. Here's news. There's no such thing as free will. Now there is moral will. You get to choose to worship other gods or Yahweh God. You can choose when you leave this place to honor God or dishonor God. But you can't leave here and be something that God has not created you to be because it's his will, not ours. Free will has led us into this mess where people are born boys, but they think they can be girls if they just wish really hard and twinkle their nose like the girl from Bewitched. Listen, you can believe you're a bowl of Cheerios if you want to, but you're not. You can wake up every morning and pour milk all over you. You can wear the Cheerio shirt and walk around, I'm a bowl of Cheerios. But your will is not free. You can't do whatever you want. You can't be whatever you want to be. There are rules and restrictions within creation, and only God is sovereign over those. And you can try all you want, and you can think all you want, and you can believe all you want. But you are what God has made you regardless. You're never going to be a bowl of Cheerios. There are dozens others. Things, beliefs, ideologies, political parties, nations that we put above Yahweh God. That's why the first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods. But you know what that does? It keeps, right, that first one keeps us focused as to what God says next. Keeps us in here living for him, which brings blessing and flourishing. Which, by the way, Martin Luther famously said, if you follow commandments one and two, you won't break any of the rest. If you keep this first commandment, you're going to keep the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. That's why God begins with the most important. Your connection to him. Along with these next three that are connections to him as well. You should have no other gods before me. Number two. And let's read all of four and five, just because I, 32 minutes became 13 minutes really quick. You shall not make, and notice all these, there's only two commands that are in the positive. Keep the Sabbath and honor your father and mother. 
All the rest of the commands, eight commands are in the negative. Do not do this. You shall not. God clearly sets boundaries for his people. It's called sin when we step outside of his boundaries. That's what needs to be repented of by his people. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Look, there's nothing in the sky that can rightly... I told you we were going to read it all. I lied. Nothing in the sky, there's nothing on the earth, there's nothing beneath the earth in the depths of the water that can rightly articulate me. So stop trying to find an image that will that, that you can worship because anything you come up with is going to demean me. That's why God, that's why we shouldn't have carved images. Anything you come up with, you can, well, what about the head of an ox with the body of a, a platypus uh, with the arms of a, a, a monkey? Anything you come up with will only demean God, will only bring him lower than what he is. That's why God says, don't do it. God is spirit. He's not an inch taller. He's not something we can even fathom or imagine. He is so infinitely greater and more majestic than we can dream. That's why he says, no carved images. And isn't it funny? Every false religion has some kind of carven image. In the Old Testament, well, I was just reading with my children the other day. We're going through 1 Kings. We started at the beginning of summer. We're still in it, but uh, uh, back several weeks ago, we were studying about Jeroboam. The kingdom splits, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, has two tribes, and ten tribes go with uh, Jeroboam, a military leader. And what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam knows that if these ten tribes keep going to the temple to worship Yahweh, they're going to remember David. They're going to remember the promise God made to David. They're going to remember the house of David, of which Rehoboam is a part of, and they're going to return to the Lord. So what does he do to keep his own crown? Everything in this world that, that is not from God's mouth is deception and lies for the benefit of others to deceive and manipulate people. What does Jeroboam do? He creates two, and we're going to see a gold calf here in a second in Exodus, but he creates two gold calves. And he sets them in two different cities up in the northern kingdoms where he is now king of. And he tells all the people, these are now your gods who brought you out of Egypt. These are the gods that you need to worship. Be careful. Anyone who tries to steer you from the commands of God, there is no image that can bring glory to Yahweh God other than the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. No carved images. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We will not bow down. Why? Because God said not to. Everybody else is though, but we're not going to. If we're the only ones standing, I'm going to throw you in the fire. We don't care. We're not going to bow down. Why? Because God said don't. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
And this jealousy of God is not some character flaw. He's not some jealous boyfriend who doesn't want you to go swimming with other boys. Come on, that was funny. No, he's jealous the way a husband should be jealous for his wife. Right? There are some relationships that are not meant to be shared. They are holy. They are sacred. They are covenantal. And God is a covenant-making God. His people belong to him. He will not share them with lesser gods, with lesser things that we create. By the way, when we carve images that we think have holy semblance or, or meaning, that we make like God, right? what we're doing, because it's us that are the creator. No car in. God is over creation. He's not a part of creation. When we carve anything, when we try to make an image of God, it's an image from us. It's a God we create for ourselves, not the true God of eternity, not the true God of the universe. Don't worship them. I'm a, I, this relationship is just for you and for me. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. If you don't believe in generational curses, let's meet up this week sometime and I'll take you to two places. I'll take you out to the the rural trailer parks of the country, and I'll take you out to the projects of the inner city. And you can see firsthand what generational curses look like. Because it's the same in both places. It's not just one place over the other. It's the same in both. And the problems are twofold. The first is fatherlessness. When people hate God, and they don't follow his commands, it affects your children. And their children. In the same way when you honor God. When you do what he says. Even when you don't want to. When you do what he says. It blesses not only you. But it blesses your children. And it blesses their children. And it blesses their children. Verse 7. Commandment number 3. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, now remember, these, these first four, this, this is all. No other gods before me. How do we do that? Well, don't make any graven images. Got it. What's next? Keep my name holy. Don't use my name flippantly. Don't use my name. The word vain there can be translated frivolous, insincere. Don't use my name in that way. When I grew up, I heard, well, the only way you take God's name in vain is to say the, the GD word. Which, obviously, you shouldn't say that word. But there are times in which that word can be said and used in the right way. So it's not just about uh, 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 what we would call a curse word. This is about taking God's name and using it in a flippant insincere way. The way they did this in the Old Testament and why Leviticus brings laws against people who take vows in the name of the Lord. Hey, 
If you give me, let me use this land for this season and I will give you this much of the crop yield, I vow on Yahweh's name. And then if you don't, when you vow on Yahweh's name, it should mean something. So when you don't come through, you have, you have lessened Yahweh's name. You have made Yahweh's name mean nothing to your neighbor. And Yahweh's name should always mean something. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus says, don't do any vows. You're only going to lessen the name of God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's also why he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, hallowed, reverence to your name. God's name. God is holy. His, Yahweh, his personal name revealed to Moses and now God's people is holy. Don't use it flippantly. Don't. My team's going to beat your team. I swear to. We got right, to think about these things. It's part of why a lot of people don't want to study the Bible because the more you study, the more accountable you become to what you learn. The flip side of that, though, is the more tender your heart is to the things of God, the more quick to repentance you are. It should scare you to death if last night you said, Oregon's going to be Georgia. We got Bo Nix. Woo, woo, woo. I swear to. Number one, you were way wrong. <laughs> Number two, we should not use God's name in those flippant manners. When we speak God's name, it should be serious and it should be sincere. That's why you should correct your children when they go, when you say, clean your room, and they go, God, nope, no. Just like my mom used to do to me. That's a derivative of, yeah, I couldn't say gosh. I couldn't say golly. I couldn't say anything that even came close. But praise God for that. Praise God for that. Because I don't want to come close to using his name the wrong way. I don't want to come close. Number eight, verse eight, commandment four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or even the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There is a day in which God has set aside for us to take account to gather together and to hear his word and to take account whether we've put any gods before him that week. Whether we've looked at any or made any carven images in our lives that, that are uh, vying for the worship that only belongs to him. By the way, Ryan and the band, beautiful worship this morning. There is a day of the week in which we are to stop from all that we do that produces. We're to stop from all our work. Hey, point number one, free people don't have to work. 
What is God built through the Sabbath? What is God building? Why in God in creation did he work six days and then rest on the seventh? God doesn't need rest. He did that as an example to us because a free people have the freedom to take a day off. People who work seven days a week. Well, you know, I'm only young once and I'm in my prime and I just got to get this done. I got to get that account to where I need it. And if I work hard now, I can play hard later. If you're working seven days a week, it shows you're still in slavery and bondage. You're not free. You've put something above and before Yahweh God. Free people have the ability to take a day off and worship him and honor him and remember him and repent of sin and come together and be encouraged by one another who who are following Yahweh God alongside you, building the society that is blessed and can flourish, the only society that can be blessed and can flourish. Now, a lot of people say, you know, a lot, there's a lot of arguments about the Sabbath day, and we don't have time to get into them because I'm already late. But just know this. It's not about the day of the week. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was Saturday. When Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning, Christians began, they still went to the temple on Saturday, but they began worshiping as Christians on what they called from that point on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day he rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. When we found this new world, our leaders didn't know what to do. What do we do? What's the day that we're going to take? Is it going to be Saturday like the Old Testament? Is it going to be Sunday like the New Testament? So they just gave us both off. That's why we have a weekend. It's awesome, isn't it? They're like, we can't decide, so let's just give them both off. The day is not, there are entire denominations that are hell-bent on what day it is. I remind you of Colossians chapter 3, or Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul clearly says this to the church in Colossae, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Because these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. My Sabbath is tomorrow. It's not today. I work like a dog on Sundays. <laughs> so it's not Saturday either. I took some time to watch the Georgia game yesterday, but I asked my wife, I'm not fun to be around on Saturdays. Monday is my Sabbath. Monday, I don't think about you. I don't answer emails. I don't think about staff or elders or sin issues in the church. I don't think about nothing but my family. We try to do things where we enjoy one another. And we start every Monday morning with family. We'll be in 1 Kings tomorrow morning when we gather everybody in the living room. It is my staff. It doesn't matter about the day. Don't let anyone condemn you or judge you or make you feel like you're not saved because of days. It's not about days. It's about Christ. It's about God first and honoring his commands and living the ways according to what he commands. And this morning, these first four are about your vertical relationship with God. 
Next week, we're going to get into what this should look like, our relationships with one another, because that's just as important to God. It's not just religious obligations. It's also social obligations that are moral absolutes in the kingdom and economy of God. By the way, something else that's unique about the Ten Commandments. If you're you're here this morning, and as we're walking through these, as we're talking about other gods and graven images and and his name, how holy it is, and and how important coming together to, to taking a day off, showing our freedom, to take a day off, to honor him, to worship him, a day that is holy. If there's conviction in your heart, here's the good news. You don't have to leave convicted. Now, condemnation, if you feel condemnation, no, I'm not a good person, that's condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But hopefully you do have conviction. Hopefully you see where the world's going and how their version of the good leads to more and more and more immorality. And hopefully God is pulling you in to his commands that bring blessing and flourishing. There's good news. You can leave here with joy in your heart knowing that as God's people saved by grace, we can say, God, this one I'm not doing so well at. Thank you for showing me. Forgive me of my sin because you lived the perfect life that I, Jesus, God became flesh, lived the perfect life I have not. It is his death in my place. I am a sinner. I stand condemned. I am at fault. But Jesus Christ stood condemned in my place. So I can go, forgive me, Lord Jesus. May I not forget this conviction and these words. And may I, like many other of my brothers and sisters, may I leave this place with your commands written on my heart on my hands that I may not sin further against you. We have as God's people that opportunity to go forth in the grace we've been given to live better lives that better honor him from this day. Today is a new day for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for your word. God, help us. What the world needs now is not love, sweet love. What the world needs now is Yahweh, God, and his commands. May we be the representation you've called us to be as we faithfully and with conviction put you first in our church, and in our individual lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.